can uh, turn in your Bibles with me. We're going to be reading this morning from Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, uh, 1, 12 through 2, 11. If you're looking for it in your pew Bibles, it is in, on page 553. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So if you opened your Bible to that text, I would encourage you to keep it right there. If you didn't, go ahead and turn there. That's where we're going to be. We're actually going to continue on through the end of uh, chapter uh, 2 as well as we continue our sermon series from the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me get my notes up here. So if I asked you to stand on the corner of Verona and Main Street, if I said, hey, tomorrow from 5 o'clock, from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., I want you to go stand on the corner of that street, that intersection there. How would you respond? Yeah. Um, 
I recently heard a pastor use this scenario as a way of introducing the purpose of Ecclesiastes. If I were to ask you to do that, you naturally would ask, why, right? Okay. Um, if I just replied to you, I think it's a good idea. You would sign up immediately, right? No, you would say, why do you think it's a good idea? It just is. You know, you say, okay, listen, if I'm going to get up at 5 o'clock and go stand on the corner for two hours, I'm going to need a little bit more information than just the fact that you think it's a good idea, okay? The pastor I was listening to went on to say that while we would take time to find out answers about a request to stand on a corner, most people do not take time to ask and ponder the deep questions about life. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. This is what we started last week. Remember last week we talked about how that uh, the bland reality of life summons us to ponder a question that only Jesus can answer. That's what we talked about last week. And by way of review, just a couple of words, uh, uh, you know, some of these deep questions were like, what's the point and why do we exist? But, but remember, there was, there was a, a couple very important words and phrases that uh, in order for us to fully understand the book of Ecclesiastes and to properly apply it. Uh, do you remember uh, what you see translated in our translations, vanity of vanities? Anyone remember the Hebrew word for that? Anyone remember? Hevel, yeah, Hevel, all right, okay, yeah. So some people, some versions translate that as meaningless, uh, some uh, vapor. We settled more on vapor last week of, because it has this idea of that it's not so much meaningless in the way that we understand meaningless, but it just means it doesn't last. And, and you can't grab hold of it, just a you know, smoke or vapor that goes and you try to grab at it and everything, and you open your hand and nothing's there, right? And, and it doesn't last. I mean, you, you light a match, you blow it out, and, and then it's just gone, right? And so this is what the, the author here is talking about here, and uh, that this is all of life. The other phrase that, 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 that was very important to us, uh, understanding this book, is under the sun, under the sun. What that means is the sin-cursed world that humans experience. What is found here, a world full of beautiful waterfalls and rainbows, but also thorns and thistles and pain and sorrow, those things that are not found in heaven with God. That's life under the sun. And so the author here, we said his name was Kohelis. Uh, it's a philosopher, a teacher, a preacher. It's, it's uh, listed in different ways. Some people believe it to be Solomon. Uh, some say it's a Solomon-like figure. really doesn't matter, but the point is, is that the author here, our teacher for today in this book, he says, life under the sun in the sin-cursed world, it's all vapor, vapor. And so we're going to continue this. We talked last week how that Jesus answered some very important questions that gives us hope to us. But as remember, though, what he is doing, what this teacher is doing here is he's walking us through, and it's going to be 12 chapters, and, and there's going to be like little snapshots of hope, and we're going to get to one of those actually in our text today. But mostly the book is about just talking over and over again about how life is Havel, vapor. And so uh, we'll continue that today. So um, he invites us, our philosopher, our teacher, our preacher, he invites us to ponder life's deepest questions with him this morning, so that's what I want to do. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to frame this sermon very simplistically here, and so here's, this, I'm just going to give you the outline here. This is not like a summary statement, this is more of just, you know, laying the map out in front of you what we're going to do over the next few minutes. We need to appreciate the fact that we have the opportunity to learn from an expert. So we're going to talk about that for a few minutes, and then we need to get to sample some of his work 
then finally, at the end, we must accept his final conclusion. Because if we ignore his conclusion, it will just be chasing the wind. Chasing the wind, that's a phrase that he introduced in our text today. Right now, he talks about this idea of this, this concept of chasing the wind. Um, if I were to uh, you know, talk to you or, or give you the mental picture of someone who is running after the breeze and trying to capture it with a net, what would you think? You think that person is crazy or silly, absurd. If I were to put, uh, or someone that, you know, you have those tornado chasers, right? And they want to go and get video of it. But what if someone says, oh, I don't want pictures of the tornado. I want to harness it. You want to chase it down. You would think, nuts, right? Okay? That's what he's saying here. It's like all of this, the things that we try to do is like chasing the wind, and so what I want to do is I want to talk through about how the conclusions that our master teacher is going to bring us to today and why we should include and embrace those. But first, but first let me pray and ask God's blessing on this time, and then I will dive in. Father, I do want to pause now and ask for your guidance and your leading, because if we're going to teach this correctly, if we're going to make application, if I'm going to teach it correctly and all of us are going to make application to our lives individually from this text of Scripture, we need your Spirit. There's no doubt about that. There's no uh, debate. There's, there's no uh, a wondering if that's true. We need your Spirit. And so, we're just asking for that right now. We're asking that I would communicate in a way that is accurate to the text, but helpful and relevant, and, and that the words that I choose would be, uh, that would be best for communicating this text. And as we, as we walk through it, God, we don't want to just add knowledge about, oh, that's what that word means, or oh, that's what that book is talking about. We want it to press us, and we want us to mold it to mold us, to your spirit to mold us, to be more like Jesus and to live the lives that we're supposed to be living. And so as we walk through some of these bland realities, as we consider the notion of life under the sun as hevel or chasing after the wind, we pray that our minds and our hearts will be focused on you and drawn to the wonders of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we do pray. Amen. Amen. So first of all, we have the opportunity to learn from an expert. Now, as we look at this text, it's clear that the teacher has put a lot of effort into thinking through the meaning of life. Uh, you know, just look through this, this list. I, I put some of these uh, references up on the screen for you. Look at this. In our text, he says, I applied my heart to seek and search. Okay, this word applied means he just devoted. I mean, it was, he was all in on this. I said in my heart. I applied my heart. I said in my heart again. I turned to consider. I said in my heart. I turned about and gave my heart up. I mean, these are all phrases that are in our text of Scripture today that shows that this was something that our teacher is shown that, hey, he's worked really, really hard at it. Furthermore, look at chapter 2 in verse 12. He says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. What does he mean by that when he says, For what can the man do who comes after the king? What he's saying here is, I'm the king. He says, No one can do, no one can give more attention to this than me. He says, um, 
basically what he's saying, that, that there's no one that could come after him that could do more to consider the meaning of life in these deep questions more than him. He had more time. He had more resources. He had more wisdom to devote to such a study than anyone before or after him. And he says, listen, so listen, I, I've done the work here. I've done the spade work. I, I've put the effort into this. this is the, these are the things that I've been pondering and considering. And so, I think, and in the beginning, this will be really helpful for us to at least recognize that we have the opportunity to learn from an expert here. We, we often turn to experts for various forms of instruction. I remember when I bought my first vehicle, one of the first things I did, my, my dad told me, he's like, you got your first car, that's good. Now go and buy the Chilton's manual for it, okay? Now, some of you know what that is, okay? Chilton's was a they made these car manuals, okay, and basically, it, you could figure out how to fix anything in these things, okay, and so you learn from the experts here. I, I often, if you go to my office, you'll see that I've got a lot of books in there, and these are the experts that I, I turn to, and so by way of illustration, I brought this book out here. So this is a book, this is a commentary on the book of Acts, actually, uh, Ryrie, Charles Ryrie, okay, Dallas guy, dispensationalist, this guy, small book, about 100 pages or so, just over 100 pages, helpful, okay, so you could read something like this and find out some things about the book of Acts. Conversely, I have this book on Acts, okay, by the way, this is volume four on the book of Acts, okay, so, this is like three-ish thousand pages on the book of Acts. I mean, his work, this is Keener's work on it, it's a standard. Keener's work is so intense on the book of Acts that it takes him 300 pages of this volume just to list his work cited, okay? So, 300 pages of work cited. Have I read them all? No, okay? All right? But my point is this, our teacher, our expert teacher is not Ryrie today. He's keener. He's put a lot of thought into this, just so you get the effect. Okay, all right? So it's as if our teacher is saying, when it comes to thinking about the meaning of life, I've done the work. I've put a lot of work into it. I could give you hundreds of pages of work cited, if you will, and so... We shouldn't be discouraged that we're not the teacher, but rather we should be grateful that we have an expert to learn from. And so, I just want to orient ourselves to that this morning when we look at this text. All these things of how he really considered these matters, he is the expert that we can learn from. So, having that out of the way, now, like what every trip to Costco is really about, let's sample his work, okay? All right? Okay, let's sample some of the experts' work here. So we're going to look at different paragraphs here. We're going to go back to chapter 1 and look at verses 12 through 18. And so we're going to see the various things, that, the various efforts that our master teacher put into um, uh, uh, trying to find out the meaning of life and trying to figure out, answer some of these deepest questions that he had here. First of all, we have wisdom. He, he says, I applied my heart to seek, and this is verse 13, and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. 
And so this is the first thing that he says, okay, so I, I've implied, inclined my heart to, to seek after wisdom and to, to have wisdom, and this is going to be how that we're supposed to devote ourselves to, and so this is what he does. But he, he comes to this realization that life is unhappy business. It's unhappy because, look at verse, 13, verse 15, rather, he gives a proverb. He gives two observations in this paragraph, and then a proverb after each one. And in verse 15, we have the first one. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What is he talking about there? What he's saying here is he's saying that life under the sun in this sin-cursed world will always have trials and tribulations, no matter how wise we are, no matter how much wisdom we apply to life, life under the sun is heaven. It's, it's a vapor. It's, there's some things that are just always going to be crooked. Wisdom can help us manage problems to a degree, but wisdom cannot eradicate problems in life under the sun in this sin-cursed world. Think of our health care. You know, it's true we can do a lot to manage sickness and pain, but we cannot remove the possibility or the probability that all will get sick, have pain, and most certainly die. No matter how much wisdom we have, no matter how, how, how much information our medical community gathers and learns and gains, we still get sick and we still die. Because some things in this life, in life under the sun, they're crooked and they'll never be made straight. Sometimes things break down. Sometimes situations don't work out. Sometimes, and it's really, there's, there's just no other way to explain it other than this is part of a sin-cursed world that we live in, life under the sun. And so his first sample is wisdom, and he says, I, 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 I've tried to learn everything, and I'm, I, I'm the wisest person to ever walk here by God's gift, and I've come to realize that life is an unhappy business and that some things just will not be made straight. So we may be tempted to think, well, what's the point then? What's the point if, if we can't do this through wisdom, what's the point? We shouldn't even try. Now, according to our teacher, you're asking the right question, but you're coming to the wrong conclusion. Let's carry on. What else did wisdom teach our expert here? Not only that life is an unhappy business, but he also says that wisdom increases sorrow. Wisdom and knowledge increase sorrow. This is the reason why this sample of wisdom is not going to be the ultimate solution according to our expert teacher today. He says in verse 18, he says, For in much wisdom is vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. As my brothers and I became adults, and we'd be back at my parents' house, and we'd be talking, and inevitably, stories would start being shared. Oh, I remember that time we did this, and I oh, remember that time that happened. I remember that time, you know, the car went into the ditch, you know, and it was mom's car. You remember that, you know, and everything. And it dawned on us, mom didn't know about any of that stuff. <laughs> And I remember mom looking at us, and she said this one phrase, boys, ignorance is bliss, okay? <laughs> all right? She says, I don't need to know all this, all right? That happened years ago. I don't need to know all about the shenanigans. I don't need to know all the things that had happened here. Because what was she saying here in a more humorous way is 
that wisdom and knowledge actually can increase sorrow. To switch a metaphor, we don't always want to know how the sausage is made. We'll just enjoy it. Okay? Yeah. The more we know sometimes, the more sorrow is increased. Do you really want to know how much human trafficking goes on in this world? Do you really want to know about some of the things that people do to inflict pain on other people? That's happening right now. Do you really want to know about these things? You see, all the injustice in the world. You see, wisdom and knowledge actually does increase sorrow. And so our master teacher went to wisdom to say, okay, here we're going to find satisfaction. Here we're going to find the meanings of life. Here this is the answer. And then in the end, he realized that it just frustrated him and actually increased sorrow. So the first sample was wisdom doesn't solve all of life's problems, can't give the answers we're looking for. In the end, he says, we're chasing the wind. So, let's go to the second sample. What's the second sample? Well, he, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, okay, what about, uh, what about, my thing is going crazy here. What about pleasure? What about pleasure? He says, come now, I will test you with pleasure, he says in my heart. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. He, he goes through this next section here, and he talks about a lot of the things that he did to build up his pleasure. And one of those was the first thing is this, these great works or accomplishments that he does. And notice in verses 4 through 6, he says, I made great works, and I built houses and built, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He says, I've done this. Now notice, I don't know if you noticed it or not, notice every one of those is plural. He said, it's not like he just built one house. I built houses. All right? And so he's got all these houses and parks and, and great trees. And in some way, it's almost as if he's re- trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. All these trees and fruit and everything. He says, it's just pleasure to me. I'm going to build all these things. Not only did he do these accomplishments, and then in verse 7 he talks about he had servants, he had people in his house to serve him so that he didn't have to lift a finger if he didn't want to. Pleasure, life of ease, and he could just do whatever. Whenever he wanted anything to eat, he would just say, hey, go get me this. And, and if, if he wanted a steak, he'd go get a steak, you know, for breakfast or whatever. It didn't matter. Whatever he wanted, he was going to have. Servants were there to give it to him. And not only the servants, but Verses 7 and 8 talk about how the, the, the latter part of verse 7 and 8 talks about the great possessions of herds and flocks. Gather myself silver and gold in the treasury. He had just incredible, incredible wealth. Solomon had some of the greatest wealth, if this is the Solomon figure. In 1 Kings chapter 10, we see a, a, a summary of this. This is when the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. And this is what she says. It says that when she saw everything, now this is a queen, okay? So she's used to wealth, okay? She's used to riches. She comes to visit Solomon because she heard of him. It says that when she saw all these things that he had, there was no more breath in her. It took her breath away to see what he had. She says this, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until it came and my own eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told to me. 
Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I've heard. He goes on to say, and it talks about all the different things that, that uh, they had, and here's the great wealth that he has, and it says, And the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Beside that, which came from the exporters and the business of the merchants and all the kings of the West. It talks about the shields that he had, and it talks about all these things. Notice this. It says, None were of silver. Silver was not considered anything in the days of Solomon. This was the wealth that this guy had. I mean, when you talk about wealth, he had wealth. It talks about singing people there. I don't know if you noticed that or not. It says, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. People, scholars pointed out there that it was unusual to have a mixed choir during that time. And so when he says, I have singers, both men and women, that was, that was highly unusual. And it seems the way he writes about it is that they're in his house. It's just, they're, they're, they're in the palace, and anytime he wants a song, he just is like, here we go. It's like the original Alexa, the original Hey Siri, right? You know, okay, if I just made someone's phone go off, I'm sorry. But the point is, is that, I mean, this is like Solomon's sitting there talking, like, hey, let's have some music. And so he just, you know, here comes the choir, and they're singing, they had to pay these people. Man, wealth. Get everything. Verse 8 talks about a sexual gratification as well. And it says many concubines. Actually, that term is a little bit unusual. They don't really know exactly how to translate it. No matter how it's translated, it comes to the end of his sexual gratification. Whatever he wanted. Nothing was held back. He tried everything. Pleasure. Now look at the summary in verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this is the reward for all my toil. I did not keep anything back. He had whatever he wanted. In some ways, he was like a self-made man with everything he could ever dream of. You know, Michelangelo, he wrote, or not wrote, he, he, he made four small statues and in it, it was literally of, of statues of a man tearing himself out of rock, okay? And the whole point was is that he was trying to communicate man is great. Man will um, be the master of his own destiny, and he will, he will r- rise above anything, and he will be a self-made person. You know, a few weeks ago, we were driving over in Middleton, and, uh, and, and I had just read about Michelangelo's uh, statues, and so it was kind of fresh in my mind. And in Middleton, Wisconsin, of all places, I see this statue, and here's the statue, okay? And, and there it is. It's, 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 it's near Costco, okay? So you can go find it, okay? But, but it's, it's a statue of a guy chiseling himself out of rock, making himself great, okay? If anyone could say that they could done, have done that, it would have been Solomon here. All the pleasure, everything that he wanted to do, he had and he built it for himself. All the accomplishments and the servants and the wealth, sexual gratification, everything. And yet, look at verse 11. And behold, all was vanity, striving after the wind. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. He tried it. 
Our expert teacher, remember, we're sitting at the feet of an expert today. He's done it. So the things that you think, man, oh, life would be so much easier if I had this. If I had this, let's just stop and learn from the expert here who's put the work into this and done the experience. Wisdom didn't work. Pleasure didn't work. What else? Let's look at verses 12 and following of chapter 2. This idea of legacy. He says, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, so he's just said, okay, it is better. Life will be a little bit easier if you live wisely, just like if you walk around in the light rather than the darkness, it's going to be easier, okay? But then he says, but I perceived, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. So I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. So why have I been so wise? And I said this in heart because this is also vanity. Look at verse 16. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that all the days to come, all will be long forgotten. How the wise dies like the fool. So I hated life. All is vanity, striving after the wind. He says while living wisely does have some benefits, our expert teacher here says in the end it doesn't change anything. Both the fool and the wise, they die. And that there is no enduring remembrance of either of them in the end. Just like for for the vast, vast, vast majority of people, we are going to live, we're going to die, and we're going to be forgotten. That's it. And, and, and here, our expert teacher is looking at this and saying, I have had wisdom, and I have had, I have had pleasure, I've had everything here, and, and, and now there's really probably not going to be much legacy for most people. This is chasing after the wind. What's the point here? So he says, I hated life. He has one more sample. Verses 18 through 23. And this was the example of work. And this is one that probably is one that hits most home to us. But we understand it best. He says that, um, I hated my toil, verse 18. For which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And yet, who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. So he's looking at this idea of work. And he says that our teacher here, our expert teacher, he laments the fact that he can't take any of the fruit of his hard labor with him when he dies. Now, we've always heard that, that you can't take it with you when you die. Although some people apparently try, okay? All right? All right? You can't take it with you no matter how hard you try. See, the expert here realizes that rather than working for his own profit, he's actually end up working for someone else. And who is he working for? Probably the slacker who gets all of his stuff when he dies. He says that, he says that who knows whether he'll be a wise or a fool. Everything that he's earned, everything he's worked hard for, he, he can't take it with him, so it stays and goes to somebody. And here's the thing, that it just grates him. It's like a pebble in his shoe. He says, they didn't work for it. They get all the benefits of all of my hard work and everything I've done, and then who knows whether they're going to be a wise person or a foolish person. He has no control over it. It's chasing the wind. 
Now, Solomon, if this is indeed the author, his legacy is going to go through something like this. You remember, Solomon's king over all of Israel, right? How many tribes? How many tribes of Israel? How many? Twelve. Good, good, okay. All right. So he's got twelve tribes. Solomon's son, you remember his son's name? Rehoboam, okay? After Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king. What happens to the kingdom? How many of the tribes does Rehoboam lose? Ten. Ten twelfths. I know you can reduce fractions, but ten twelfths, okay, of the kingdom is gone. A fool. Now, I'm not saying Solomon knew this, but it's a very vivid picture. What we have, what we've worked so hard for, what we have in one generation, in just a day, actually, can just be gone. And Solomon says, it's chasing the wind. It's hell. And so, our possessions and our wealth and the fruit of our hard work, in the end, it is just vapor. So, we have an expert we've looked at. We sampled some of his work in the text here. Now, as we finish out, or we're, we're, we're coming to uh, rounding out here, or rounding third base and heading home here, let's, we must embrace the expert's final conclusion here, if we're going to make any sense of this. It, if, unless you're going to walk away completely depressed, okay, we have, to, we have to see some of the highlights here that actually our author gives to us. I say that we must embrace his final conclusion. I use the word final intentionally there because it seems that his initial conclusion is to, verse 17, hate life, and verse 18, hate his work, okay? Now, some of you say, yeah, I'm there. <laughs> yep. yep, I don't like my job, and I really don't like my life. So, yep, I'm there with you. Expert teacher, we're, we're one accord. Okay, but that's not where he ends, okay? He says all of life is chasing the wind here. But in verse 24 of chapter 2, we get the surprising turn. Let me read it for you. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Wait a minute here. He just said he hated life. He just said he hated his work. Now, what, what, what is he saying here? There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. He takes this turning, the surprising turn here, and it's really a foreshadowing to the conclusion of this book. And, and actually, it's a foreshadowing beyond the end of this book because he begins to reveal concepts and perspectives that Jesus and his apostles will flush out many years later. But for now, our expert teacher says that we should not hate life and work, but rather we should enjoy food and drink and toil. And the reason why, he says, the only way to do that is to see them from the hand of God. So what does this mean? It means that our expert realized, our expert teacher realizes that food and drink and toil by themselves were never meant to bring lasting satisfaction. Rather, we have this, rather food, drink, and toil are intended by God to be used for temporary enjoyment and as a means to glorify God. 
And so that's what he's saying. He said, put these things in the proper categories here. And once you remove, put these things where they're supposed to be, then it makes sense. Then life is good. Some of you maybe are more of neat freaks and everything has to be in its place. And if something's out of place, it's like it just bothers you. It just bothers you. Maybe some of you are like that. Others of you, you're like, meh, chaos is great. Okay, all right. Something, some people, if they walk into a room, there's like a book is in the wrong spot or the picture's crooked or something like that. And it's like they have to fix it in order for life to make sense. Well, here we have work and food and drink. When they're out of the right, right, right place in our lives, it just causes chaos because it's not meant to bring lasting satisfaction. I mean, is this not what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Can you see how that parallels what this author, our expert teacher, has just said in verse 24, you should eat or drink or find enjoyment in his work, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When we put these things in the proper place in our lives, that's when we can actually enjoy them. It is hard. It's hard because we look to these things for comfort and, and to give us more than what they're intended to give us. And, and, and our jobs, is to, to, we look to them for our identity. And, and, and again, we all do it. I do it. You do it. We all do it. Our responsibilities, it may not be a, a job that you go in and clock in or clock out, maybe you're retired, or maybe you're not in the active workforce or something like that. But, but we all have responsibilities. We all have activities that we look to as our core identity. That's Hevel. It's chasing after the wind. As a pastor, it's easy for me just to think, okay, I'm a pastor first and foremost. But no, I'm a child of God first and foremost. I live out being a disciple of Jesus Christ by being a pastor, by being a husband, by being a father right? You primarily live out being a disciple of Christ through whatever responsibilities and activities that you are called to do. So, let's go back to one of our expert samples just to make this clear, okay? I don't have time to do this with each and every one of them, but um, you could maybe do this later on for the other examples, the other samples that we did. But for right now, as we bring this to a close, I just want to give some application to one of his samples of this important truth here. And so let's consider toil and work. Consider two jobs, job A and job B. Job A is mind-numbing, repetitious, and has no advancement plan. I once worked at a fiberglass company that would fit that bill, all right? It's a fiberglass factory where it was very boring and very repetitious. You have job B. Job B means something to an employee. He or she sees the job as valuable. They, they help people, and they have a path to advance and make an even greater difference in the world. So here's the question. Which one is Hevel? Which one is chasing after the wind? Our expert teacher would say both. He would say both. Both are. Because job number one, you know, job A is far less fulfilling. And so it's chasing after the wind there. But job B, the one that seems to have this advancement plan and, and all this, that's far more stressful. So 
It's chasing after the wind. So you say, well, how is this helpful, Jeremy? So we just quit our jobs? I mean, we're in the middle of the great resignation right now. Do I add to that? No, no, not at all. But it's helpful to us because our job or our wealth, our accomplishments, pleasure, legacy, whatever we want to add into this, but for this illustration, our jobs, they don't define us. And they were never intended to give us the ultimate fulfillment or satisfaction. So we work hard and then we go home. And then we work hard and then we go home. You, you, you do your best that you can at parenting, but then you just know that your kids are sinners and they need a Savior whose name happens not to be mom or dad. And so we just do our best in light of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Leave it up to Him. So you can see our work both job A and job B in our scenario, is intended for us to enjoy and glorify God. So don't make it anything more than what it is. And I believe that that's the problem that I fall into, and I'm sure you do as well. So you say, okay, but, but you know, it's a lot easier if you have a job like job B where there's actually some meaning to it and things like this. You can say, okay, there's some enjoyment. Listen, I'm in job A. I, I don't like it. It's boring. I see no advancement plan. It's just terrible. It, it seems like there's monotonous or, or your responsibility in life right now. Maybe it's not a job that you're going to. Maybe it's a responsibility as a parent or retiree or something. And you say, it's, it's more in that job A category. It's just boring and repetitious. Well, see, how do, you say, how can I enjoy this? Well, we enjoy it by seeing it for what it really truly is. It's a gift from God, according to our master teacher in verse 24. You say, how is it a gift? Well, to carry this illustration, it's a gift to help pay the bills. It's a gift to meet other people. It's a gift to gain new experiences. It's a gift to invest in people and have them invest in you. It's a gift to enjoy your health that you can actually work. It's a gift to shape your character. It's a gift to build faithfulness. It's a gift to put the glory of God on display to other people around you each and every day. It's a gift to make you more generous and kind. It's a gift to hone your skills and refine your understanding of what is truly important in life. Do you see? Don't you see? It truly is a gift. Even the most mind-numbing and boring and repetitious of responsibilities or jobs actually is a gift from the Lord. I'm not saying you don't try to change your job or advance. That's not the point. But the point is, if you're there, you can enjoy it. So to see your main responsibility, your job in life right now as a gift, ask yourself a couple of questions here. Number one, ask, how is God blessing me through my work, job, or responsibility? Ask that question, how is God blessing me right now with the job that I have, with the responsibilities that I have? How is God doing that? And then maybe ask yourself this question, what are some untapped opportunities to glorify God in my work or main responsibility in life right now? Whether it's in the workforce, as a retiree, as a student, as a parent, whatever. You know, what conversations could, should you have before it is too late in that context? What relationship needs to be repaired or strengthened? What word of encouragement needs to be said? What experience needs to be shared? You see, don't you see, there are so many untapped opportunities in these gifts that God has already given to us. I like what one person said. He says, what if our work was never intended to make us successful, but simply to make us faithful and generous? Something to ponder with our expert teacher. 
So if I was going to give you some takeaways here, I don't have them on the screen. If I was going to give you some takeaways here before we transition to the table, I would say this. Whatever you're using to find joy and satisfaction, please know that it has already been tried and found insufficient by our expert teacher. Our expert wants you to save, he wants to save you some time, some money, some energy, and save you some disappointment. The question is, are you going to listen to him? Am I going to listen to him? Number two, I would say, if we're taking things away, we should feel the weight of Adam's curse on this world. That's chasing the wind, life under the sun. And it doesn't not intended to depress us, but to ensure us that we don't get distracted or deceived by this world. So we said, whatever we're using to find joy and satisfaction has already been tried to learn from the expert. Number two, we should feel the weight of Adam's curse on this world so we don't get distracted by the world. And then finally, the takeaway I would encourage you to walk away with today is that we should enjoy food and drink and work in this life because they are gifts from the hand of God. Glimpses of Eden, if you will. And one day, it will all be restored. And so, there's actually, in the midst of all of this heaven and chasing after the wind, our expert teacher says, just receive it for what it is. It's a gift from God. Don't make it anything more than that. Otherwise, we're simply chasing after the wind.